Well, we are a newish church, and you know, we don't have everything all figured out, and we're still kind of becoming a community, but we have two very simple things that really, I think, bring meaning to our lives, best I could say, with uh, us being at the phase where we are right now in the life of the formation of Holy Trinity. And that is, uh, we kind of organize our thinking and our lives around what I call journey inward and the journey outward. And we all come to these twin journeys from various places. Uh, Some people maybe come out of very activistic, um, very outward-oriented kind of lifestyles, um, but have never paid much attention to their own heart, their own soul, how it connects with God, and kind of what's going on at that connection between the deepest part of what it means to be human and to connect with the divine. Others, um, just maybe out of temperament or just because they got lucky and, and kind of connected with the notion sometime of being a Christian, of following uh, God as he transforms their inner life, um, they sometimes have to work on having an outer life. So this twin journey, this journey inward and this journey outward, they're not like railroad tracks that run parallel, and they're certainly not options that we can kind of pick one or the other. They work more like this. No... no sincere and effectively working journey inward cannot produce the love of God that we read in the scriptures today for others. It just does. I mean, one of the, in fact, one of the ways that you can know that you're actually on an effective spirit-led journey inward is that you find yourself taking on God's heart for the least, the lost, the last, the more marginalized, and the left out. And, and what happens when you get out on that journey, though, is you find out how really impotent we actually are and how we don't have power of our own, um, how life is just incredibly fragile, and we, no matter how much we might love the least, the last, the lost, it, it, at the end of the day, we don't have ultimate power, and it sort of kind of drives you back into you know, working with your own stuff with God. And so I don't see these things as railroad tracks. I see them more as like motors or engines that works uh, synergistically together so that we can be the kind of person we saw in the reading in Acts this morning, where Philip was obviously attuned to the spirit and attuned to the other, this Ethiopian eunuch. So what I want to do this morning is, uh, in this series that we're doing in God sightings, is to just talk a bit about how God sightings are often a way to faith. I have a friend called Don Everett, who's the, uh, the InterVarsity director at UCLA, and a number of years ago, they started recognizing in InterVarsity all over America, all over the world, that people were having a difficult, um, uh, an increasingly difficult time actually coming to faith. And that all the things that InterVarsity had done for a whole generation, everything they knew to do to help people come to faith was no longer working. So at the end of this school year, I think there had been 37 or 38 kids who had come to Christ. I don't know if they're kids, but students at UCLA. Uh, had come to Christ, and so they did a study on this and uh, wrote a book about it. And he talks about these five thresholds that people have to get past these days to come to faith. And so I want to talk a bit this morning about how these God sightings and helping somebody to have a little God sighting uh, can not only be for us a way of confidence in God that he's working in our world, but to help others come to see him uh, as well. So the first thing I want to say, though, to help you um, not be afraid of this is uh, picture you have a water heater here and you've got a sink 
here. And you've got, and, and we'll make the water heater, you know, God and what he's up to. And, and this is where God is making plain what he's up to. Well, clearly the water heater and the sink have to be connected by a pipe, right? And so when hot water, the, the active agape love of God gets connected to the world, this sink where the water's made public, guess what happens? The pipeline, you and I, get warmed too. So God's doing his thing, and it's got energy, and it's got heat, and he's doing it publicly. And we're the ones, like Philip, who he uses to connect what he's doing to the world. And when we put ourselves in that place, it's not legalistic, it's not works, um, it's not uh, churchy in the sense of being you know, programmatic, it's just God's people. And when we cooperate with that, we get warmed as well. Another way to think about it maybe is, um, think about this in kind of a poetic sense. The ballerina gliding across the floor sweats. Because she does. But what we see sitting from our seats is a ballerina gliding across the floor. But there's effort involved. She sweats. You just can't see it through the costumes and the makeup. But she sweats. There's, there's, there's effort that has to happen for that kind of thing to go on. And so I want to just talk a bit this morning about how we cooperate with, this, with God in this way, helping people have God sightings that they might come to faith themselves in the spirit of what we read in the psalm this morning, that future generations will be told about the Lord. All right, so here's the first barrier. Now, I've never asked you to do this, and you might not even want to do it, and there's no forced march here. You don't have to do it. But if you happen to have something to write with, and you've got your bulletin there where it says notes, if you would just write down just one word of these five barriers. So the first one's trust. I just want you to write down these five words, trust. The reason this is the first barrier of anyone coming to faith is that it's fashionable these days to scorn the church and Christianity. There's this whole new notion out there of new atheists who, who's, who don't just say that Christianity's wrong, but that it's bad, it's evil, and it has to be stomped out. So now we have this burden on us to build trust and to kind of prove that Christians are okay, to build a friendship that's authentic and warm and accepting and real. Um, I like the way um, Eugene Peterson translates those famous words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul said, I became all things to all men. Peterson has him saying, I entered their world and I tried to experience things from their point of view, but I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ. And this is the kind of thing that's necessary for us uh, to help somebody have a God sighting in us, so to speak, so that they can trust. And so it's really simple things, just like serving people, being generous, showing love, having fun with them, so that they can kind of see in us what we read in 1 John this morning, that this is love, that God loved us and sent his son to be a sacrifice, to clear away our sins and the damage they've done to our relationship with God. Well, so the first barrier is trust. Here's the second word I invite you to write down, curiosity. So how does one go from trusting to becoming curious about Jesus. 
And here I think I just have to make kind of an obvious theological statement that ultimately, obviously, only God can make the human heart interested in him. But there are some practical things that we can do. The number one thing that uh, the research is showing today that we can do is that to actually live a Christian life, to live out the word, to show them kingdom love in some concrete or practical way. Um, the publisher of my first three books is InterVarsity Press. The president of InterVarsity Press, Bob Freiling, used to be the president of InterVarsity for a long, long time. And so a year or so ago, I was in Chicago doing something, and Bob and I were having lunch, and I just said, you know, just friend, friendly, hey, Bob, what's, well, you know, what's going on in InterVarsity? And he said, oh, there's sort of been an uptick on evangelism in college campuses. And I said, no way. That's not what I hear. It's not what I see. I mean, come on, what's going on? And he said, yeah, we can't get kids to come to an intervarsity group at all anymore. It's like pulling teeth. There's no way. No matter what we do, we can't get them to come. But if we take them to build a house for Habitat for Humanity, or if we take them to dig a well in Mexico or to build an orphanage in Africa, we have, it's the easiest time to get them to come and, and then they start hanging around with Christian people and seeing Christian people doing good, and they begin to be open as they see us living out the kingdom. A second thing that helps people become curious is for us to just show our own vulnerability, to be transparent with our own struggles, and to show how Jesus comes through for us. A third way that I think people become curious today is by observing Christian community, uh, Christians showing real love for each other, forgiveness, reconciling with each other, sharing our goods with one another. As we read a few weeks ago in Acts, this is a powerful apologetic and ought to be encouraging to those of you who can never see yourself witnessing. You know, for all of you who can never see, which this would include me, who could never see yourself going over to South Coast Plaza and just sort of stopping people in the hallway and, you know, looking them in the eye and, you know, if you can't see yourself doing that, what you can do is be a part of a community uh, that tries to live out this kind of a life. And then I think uh, the last thing we can do is a little more um, kind of concrete is that we can stimulate curiosity by asking good questions. One of the things I find myself doing a lot these days when, you know, a kind of a conversation or relationship isn't going anywhere, especially to somebody who's, you know, like um, sort of positively disconnected from God, like they've made a choice not to be connected, I, but yet they're starting to move around a little bit, maybe in their head is off and say to them, if it were up to you, would you like there to be a God? If it were up to you, would you like there to be a God? And of course, whatever they answer, it starts to show their sort of prejudices or their, you know, everybody, nobody comes to the God question as a blank. They bring something to it. And so however they answer that question, it just begins to kind of unpack their present point of view. And then if they say, well, you know, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yes, maybe. Well, then I'll say to them, all right, then would you like that being, whoever she or he is in your head, would you like that being to fully express who they are? And see, now you start getting to issues of trust or maybe issues of sin that they don't want to have to deal with God because they want to hang on to this particular sin that they're into. And you can just start, you know, very gently helping them unpack what's going on there. So here's the, the uh, third word I invite you to write down, openness. And these days, this is the hardest barrier because what's happening in our culture more and more is a kind of a deep-seated indifference. 
that people are just numb to God. Religion seems tired and old, you know, like a faded pair of jeans or a holy t-shirt or something. It just is not for most people on the surface uh, an engaging thing. And so sometimes when people are going from this barrier of curiosity to openness, a little gentle confrontation, a little nudging, a little bit of helping them see that really not all is well with their thinking and their current lifestyle choices, just to help them think about that. Or maybe to ask gentle questions like, well, what's keeping you from taking the reasonable step of becoming open? What's blocking you from declaring yourself open? So that's a really fair question, and no one would be offended by that. What are the things that's keeping you from really saying, I'm open to God? We can help them interpret how God is alive in their, and working in their lives, how maybe they're missing some God sightings. We can pray for them and that sort of thing. Here's the fourth word, seeking. Now, there's a difference between seeking and just being open, and it's a really big difference. Being open, the word that we wrote before, is a passive state. Uh, it's the decision to sort of quit resisting God. It's the willingness to lay down cynicism and antagonism, but that's not the same as seeking, when, when you find somebody in your life maybe who's seeking, is I would encourage them to begin to just pray for themselves. And because what will happen is they'll start having some God sightings, some God soundings, as Dennis said last week. They'll begin to see and hear God at work in their lives if we can get them to just begin to pray a little bit to try to intentionally connect to God. We can invite them to places where they can hear about Jesus and his kingdom. Um, I've had this vision in my mind for two years and I've just not been able to get around it, around to doing it. Thankfully, I think in the last couple of weeks, I've reorganized parts of my life where I can start paying more attention to these kinds of things. But I have a vision for starting these things called Trust and Respect Weekends where you and I can find the people in our lives who are in this sort of open seeking kind of phase, take them away somewhere for a maybe a Friday night and most of Saturday and create an environment that's intellectually, emotionally, and relationally honest in which they can trust that they can say anything they want to say about God, anything they want to say about Jesus, religion, Christianity, the church, and it will be a safe place for them to say that and they will be respected. They can trust that they can say whatever they want and it will be respected. And we will just help these people who are open and beginning to be curious, really deal with their stuff. So it's not an agenda we put on them. Rather, we let them unpack their bags. And as they unpack their bags, then on their terms, we begin to answer their questions and and deal with whatever they're dealing with. Uh, This is a place where sometimes when someone's seeking, you can actually pop the question. You can actually say, well, gosh, it's Seems like you're really open here. Do you, would you want to become a follower of Jesus? That's a totally legitimate question. Okay, everybody look at me. Everybody's selling somebody something. Don't let the, this, our culture tell you that you can't be uh, enthusiastic about Jesus. Everybody's selling somebody something. Turn on your smartphone. Go to a website. Get in your car. Turn on your TV. Everybody's selling somebody something. And it's not that we want to reduce what we're doing to selling, but neither can you let yourself, in my humble opinion, get pushed into a corner where everything is legal to be advocated for except for following Jesus. No way, man. I'm a Jesus freak. 
I do. I mean, like I really love him, like we said, but not just with this, some sort of syrupy kind of love. I think he's fantastic. I think he's amazing. I think he taught things that are the truth. And I think he did things that showed us the heart of God. And not merely the cross. He cannot be reduced to simply one thing he did. Though that one thing is central, he lived this amazing life. I find it compelling. I mean, I really do. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I find Jesus' life, his words and works, absolutely and totally compelling. And there's nothing wrong with saying that to somebody who's curious or open. They expect us to. What do you think happens when they go to a Buddhist service? Think they go to Buddhist seeker services? Like, what would a Buddhist seeker service look like? You can't have a Buddhist secret, uh, seeker service. It's impossible. Because Buddhism is a set of practices. It's not a coherent theology. So Buddhists show you what they do. Well, what's wrong with us showing? I actually think Jesus is fantastic. And I don't just believe in him. And I don't just love him with a sort of emotional feeling. But I love him in the sense that I will his good and the good of his agenda. And because I will the good of Jesus and what he's up to on the earth, I then organize my life around it. And, and I think it's an amazing thing. And it's okay to invite people into that. This is what's happening, obviously, in the little dance that's happening in our, on our passage in Acts today. And I want you to see how this is completely spirit-led. The Lord said to Philip, go. So then he meets this Ethiopian eunuch. And then the spirit told Philip, go up to that chariot and stay near it. And so Philip runs up to the chariot. And then what does he do? He begins to explain, this is Jesus. This is what he's doing in my life. Because this Ethiopian eunuch was open. He was searching the scriptures and had been reading the passage that prophesied the crucifixion of Jesus. Well, here's the last thing. Uh, crossing the line. So this is your last, this is the fifth one, but it's three words, crossing the line. And I just want to say that what I've seen happen in the last 10 to 15 years is that in an effort to be sensitive and kind of a postmodern sense, we've kind of hoped that people would just kind of slide across the line. But it doesn't actually happen that way. You know, no one slips up and goes, oops, and finds themselves following Jesus. Hello? You don't, this is not a, I just slipped up and now I'm, and that's not the way it works. It's a conscious decision. And it's a conscious decision that actually says, and, and this is the part that is hard in our sort of postmodern, post-Christian culture. You actually have to make a decision because all of the major world's religions are making truth claims. They're all saying our story about the world and its genesis and it's telos, it's end, where it's going. Our story about that is true. All the major religions are saying that. None of the major world's religions are saying, oh, it doesn't matter, it's all about the same. None of them are saying that. So this is actually a very concrete, specific decision that someone has to make that says, yes, I believe that the Jesus way is the way. So it's not so much that the line that someone crosses has to go away, but I would say this, that evangelism for most of my lifetime has seen that line as a finish line, and I would like to reinterpret it as a starting line. Yes, you cross a line, 
But it's not, so now I cross the line, you know, game over, now I go to heaven when I die. No, you cross a line that's a starting line. I imagine, Dennis, when you ran the race this morning, you had a line you crossed when you started. It wasn't a finish line, it was a starting line. And so, yes, we have to ask people to cross a line, but it's a line that begins followership of Jesus so that they can experience what First John said this morning. Everyone who confesses that Jesus is God's son participates continuously in an intimate relationship with God. And so people have to come to a place where in their own heart, in their own mind, they're confronting their relativism. It just has to happen. You just have to come to a place where, you know, red is not blue and blue is not green and green is not orange. And they have to come to some sort of understanding about it. Now, I got to bring this in for landing, but I can't help telling you this. When Jesus told the parables, these very famous parables of the treasure buried in the field and the pearl of great price... Those were parables that were given to help clarify human intention. Jesus would have never stood for the postmodern angst over letting people just live an unintentional life. There is no way to do anything important in the human society that's unintentional. How do you be unintentionally married? How do you unintentionally parent? How do you unintentionally even be a good employee or a good supervisor? Yet people think they can be utterly unintentional about their spirituality. And that just sits in our culture today like an elephant in the living room. But Jesus said, no, if you've seen the pearl, are you willing to organize your life to get that pearl? Are you willing to go sell everything you have and leverage it to get this pearl of great price? Or or Jesus said, well, or let's pretend you're a real estate agent and there's this treasure buried in a field. Are you willing to go sell your holdings to get this? See, Jesus was saying to people who had been listening to him and filtering him according to their own present views of things, he was saying, are you willing to challenge those views and then reorganize all of that so that you can get the pearl or the treasure? This is the Jesus who we say we worship. He was actively helping, trying to help people come to a conclusion about Yahweh, about Jehovah, about God, about what God was up to in these kind of flaky Jewish people who got it right sometimes and didn't get it right other times. They were as bad as the church is today. But Jesus still said, you really have to consider this. And are you willing to do this or not? Similar thing, of course, was happening to the rich young ruler and others. So... In conclusion, I want to say this. And I want you, to the degree that you can, I want you to actually picture this in your mind. Jesus comes across a leper, and uh, he touches him. Now, surely you've all been to the doctor in recent times and know that medical personnel do nothing without putting rubber gloves on. Can you see Jesus whipping out some rubber gloves? Like, I can't touch you because I might get contaminated. Why does Jesus have the confidence to touch a leper? Why isn't he afraid of getting leprosy? Because Jesus has full confidence that his touch will not cause leprosy to flow from the leper to him, but rather Jesus knew. Remember when the woman touched him and he said, I felt virtue flow from me. 
Jesus knew that in touching the leper, the leprosy wasn't going to flow from the leper to him, but that Jesus' wholeness was going to flow from him to the leper. And this, I want to say, is illustrative to our own hearts today, that the world is not going to give us cooties. But rather, what Jesus invites us into is to feel the rhythm in which he lived with his father, this rhythm that Philip stepped into. Philip stepped into something that was already going on. That's why the Lord said, and then the Spirit said, there was something already going on that expresses the heart of God that goes all the way back to the calling of Abraham and comes forward all the way to the resurrection. So I close with this. After the first period, Matthew kind of organizes his gospel around these sort of periods of times, and then there's these summaries of of what Jesus had been up to. And this is near the end of one of those times, and Jesus is explaining to his disciples what's going on, because they've been seeing him do this stuff, they've been hearing him say these things, and here's what Jesus said to them. And I want you to get here the picture that if you become somebody who really begins to take serious the outer journey and helping other people have God sightings, if you're wondering what will that be like, hear these words. The Father has given me all these things to do and say. This is a unique father-son operation coming out of father and son intimacies and knowledge. But I'm not keeping it to myself. I'm willing to go over it line by line with anyone willing to listen. Come to me, Jesus said. Get away with me. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So if you're wondering what the outer journey is like, the outer journey in Jesus is not heavy, it's not ill-fitting, it's free and light and marked by unforced rhythms of grace. And this is why these journeys work together. This journey inward and this journey outward, they work together. Now I asked you to write down those five name or uh, little markers, those words. As we pause now, just in the next few seconds as it comes to you easily, if it doesn't come, that's fine. But if it comes to you easily, I wonder if you might just write a name beside each one of those words. Somebody in your life who's open or curious or resisting. Just think or they don't trust Christians. Just take a moment here and just see if the Holy Spirit will lead you to write a name next to one of those words.